Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of business and history. I'm Jason Dressel and happy November. I hope everyone had a fun Halloween if you're into Halloween. Halloween is definitely a love it or hate it holiday, kind of like Valentine's Day, I guess. You're either all in on it or kind of meh, whatever. Uh, And we're going to talk a little more about Halloween in a bit. Uh, We're also going to talk about some interesting business milestones from November, and we're going to get Bruce, the big chief out here, to talk about some of the big headlines from the last couple of weeks, including some big news regarding vending machines, a potential takeover of Tiffany, the increased lobbying efforts of big tech, and the Davos in the desert. But first, let's begin with our mystery company of the month. So in honor of Veterans Day, this mystery company has had a long-standing relationship with the USO, the United Service Organizations for National Defense, later known as the USO, was formed in 1941 with the purpose of providing support to the troops. The USO was formed as a partnership that included the Salvation Army, YMCA, YWCA, National Catholic Community Services, National Jewish Welfare Board, and National Travelers Aid Association. I did not know that. The USO's mission is to strengthen America's military service members by keeping them connected to family, home, and country throughout their service to the nation. And this mystery company has been a partner to the USO dating all the way back to its founding year in 1941. During World War II, this company's president proclaimed that everyone in the military should be able to buy this product for five cents. And this company's global growth over the rest of the 20th century, including building over 60 new plants around the world that were largely integrated with the American military's supply chains. This is one of those that's pretty easy. And if you don't know it, you're going to be really annoyed with yourself when I tell you who it is. We'll come back with our mystery company reveal a little later in the episode. But first, let's dig into Halloween. I'll tell you one company that is hardcore serious about their Halloween, and that's Southwest Airlines. Have you ever walked through a Southwest terminal in an airport in October? Those gates are decked out and heavily decorated. Cobwebs all over the place. Spiders are crawling alongside the monitors. Uh, We were actually at Southwest's headquarters last week on Halloween with some of our team, and it was crazy. Uh, We received a map to guide our itinerary a week ahead of time. Uh, There were obviously costumes, live performances, filmed performances, candy, and there, there may have been an adult beverage or two. Uh, For those of you who may be interested in what I was for Halloween, I was the historical archive files of Southwest's fuel head strategy. I know, very predictable at this time of year. Uh, Their fuel head strategy is one of the company's many smart initiatives that has made it the most consistently profitable U.S. airline in recent history. And I have a track record of rather irreverent Halloween costumes, so portraying myself as a a file box uh, of a financial strategy is not as far afield as you might think. I'll admit it was a little dorky, but it was fun. Anyway, so the Southwest party was great, and I flew home Halloween night uh, just in time to audit my kids' candy haul, and that got me thinking about the history of candy companies and Halloween. I mean, for candy companies and dentists, Halloween is like Christmas and Hanukkah for toy companies. It's it's Valentine's Day for the rose industry or, or tax season for accountants. So we did some research into this, and indeed, the Halloween that we all know and love, or don't love, is a relatively modern phenomenon. Before the 1950s, Halloween had more sinister traditions. 
It was broadly associated with teenagers creating havoc, like in 1894 when 200 boys gathered to throw flour on well-dressed people riding streetcars in Washington, D.C. And in the early 20th century, kids continued to escalate their Halloween pranks with lovely tactics like throwing bricks into shop windows and slashing tires. In modern times, I think this is what we call rioting. Uh, but anyway, by the World War II era, there was a series of efforts to shift away from the holiday. In 1942, the Chicago City Council voted to abolish Halloween and instead create a conservation day on October 31st. And during the Truman administration, the Senate Judiciary Committee recommended that Halloween be repurposed as Youth Honor Day to promote moral principles among youth. Ultimately, uh, the solution became pushing trick-or-treating to be more constructive and polite. Adults taught kids how to act nicely for treats or toys and urged other adults to be prepared with goodies. So my interpretation of this is that the kids kind of won the war. I mean, when it comes to trick-or-treating, ultimately the kids convinced the grown-ups to raise their game in the treats department so as to not get tricked with slashed tires or bricks in their windows. Nice. But like many other facets of American life, the Halloween we know today began to take shape in the 1950s and 1960s. Brock's, a big producer of candy corn, was likely one of the earliest candy companies advertising distinctly Halloween-themed candy. They started producing treats like mellow cream pumpkins and taffy broomsticks in the late 50s. And by 1965, profits from candy and costumes were estimated to be $300 million. And then in 1966, It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown debuted on October 27th on CBS. ABC then purchased the rights in 2001 and has been airing it ever since. And this year, the average consumer plans to spend about $86 on candy, costumes, and decorations. And consumers are estimated to spend $2.6 billion on candy. That is a ton of candy. Uh, as far as the top players in the candy business, uh, as you would imagine, Hershey's and Mars Wrigley, remember Mars and Wrigley are now the same company, dominate the U.S. market with a combined 73% of market share. Mars Wrigley even has a chief Halloween officer role for the season, and this CHO oversees seasonal strategies and Halloween offerings. And Mars also recently made an interesting marketing move with the Snickers brand. Uh, the Snickers brand got behind a petition to move Halloween to the last Saturday in October, which was started by the Halloween and Costumes Association, uh, which reinforces that there is an association for everything, and has the support of more than 150,000 petition signers, including Party City. Uh, and if the government agreed to make the last Saturday in October the Halloween holiday, Snickers agreed to give out one million free fun-sized bars. It became clear that the government was not going to take up this cause. Uh, the powers that be at Snickers, however, still decided to hand out the free Snickers. So they actually gave away one million Snickers at onemillionsnickers.com, where folks could download a Walmart gift card for $3.90 for a bag of fun size Snickers. Uh, full disclosure, I tried this last week before Halloween, and it was too late. They were all sold out. Hershey's, meanwhile, is famous for its Halloween variety bags. They have Kit Kats and Hershey bars and Reese's and Almond Joys and Whoppers. And it's interesting to understand how they decide how much to put in each bag. 
It's actually not a standard formula. Based on market research, Hershey's will vary the mix. For example, they've discovered that Midwesterners prefer Reese's, while most Northeasterners tend to go for York peppermint patties. Hershey's also supplies bigger bags, like 220-piece assortments with greater varieties to places like Target and Walmart, whereas smaller bags with less expensive combinations uh, are uh, at places like Dollar General. Other key trends that the National Retail Federation identified for 2019 include an increase of Halloween parties, especially among young adults, an increase in pet costume sales, and a steep rise on social media use for Halloween purchase inspiration, particularly on Instagram. And the candy category is going through an interesting series of disruptions. For example, the company Smith & Sinclair produces alcoholic cocktail gummies with 5% ABV and advertised for Halloween on its website and social media. And CBD edible companies are even trying to get into the action and break into Halloween. My guess is that if the CBD edible companies actually break into Halloween in a big way, it's just going to provide further left for all the candy companies and maybe the pizza delivery industry as well. And with that, let's segue off of Halloween and listen in on my conversation with Bruce on some of the big headlines. Hey, Bruce, how's it going? All right, man. How are you? I'm doing good. So uh, let's start, uh, Bruce, with with probably the biggest uh, business news uh, that we've seen in in several weeks, and and that of course is is the the latest twist of the chicken sandwich wars. Um, <laughs> of course, we talked about this, you know, in in episode one when when Popeyes uh, launched this assault on Chick Fil A with the debut of their new chicken sandwich. And of course, there was you know lots of excitement and, and lots of media uh, around uh, this new um, uh, world-changing product. Uh, so much so that they were not able to keep the chicken sandwich in stores. Uh, but the big news is that the chicken sandwich for Popeyes is back in stores on November third. And uh, I guess my first question for you is: Has that really changed your position as a vegetarian, or are you going to be able to, uh, to to stay disciplined in this in this big moment? As, as a vegetarian, I'm constantly scanning for where the new high-tech uh, vegetarian food is. And by the way, I'll be able to get my chicken fix uh, at Kentucky Fried Chicken, who will be introducing and is introducing Beyond Meats chicken. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I'll dive in the war uh, when, they, uh, when they introduce, like, the Impossible Burger or, like, Beyond Meat. I'll be there when the, when the, when the fake chicken gets there. Okay, good. Yeah, well, I, I did. It, it's interesting. I, I did notice that um, Popeyes had an interesting strategy during the uh, period in which the, their chicken sandwich wasn't available, uh, where they were suggesting to customers to literally bring their own bread or buns into their stores and buy the chicken tenders instead of the non-available chicken sandwich, which, which struck me as kind of odd because they're basically admitting that their chicken sandwich really doesn't have anything that unique. It's essentially just their fried chicken or chicken tenders in a different shape, but in a bun. Um, but, but, but never mind. <laughs> well, well I, I, honestly, I think one of the most interesting in, in terms of kind of warfare was you know you what day they're bringing it back Sunday November third and that's clearly exactly. a shot shot over the bow of Chick Fil A who of course has notoriously never been open on Sunday 
Right. Oh, and they were they were they were explicit about that in their advertising that uh, yeah, they would be open and Chick Fil A would not be. Yeah. I know. So. I know. So let's uh, so let's 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 move on from uh, from fast food to even faster food, and that would be uh, vending machines. Uh, so we also saw uh, some interesting news uh, coming out with respect to uh, some new developments in the uh, in the highly highly mobile uh, vending machine industry. Well, you know, the vending machine industry has made a commitment, not unlike a lot of industries. Uh, 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 who are seeing a shrinking consumer base to healthier foods that they, they claim that up to 33% of their uh, product is going to be healthy. Um, and, I, and, and the right word there is highly mobile. Um, this industry goes back literally to the early days of, of uh, the railways, where uh, in the 1880s in England, uh, you could purchase uh, things through a vending machine, typically things that were not good for you then, uh, cigarettes. Uh, were early sold uh, in the in the uh, vending machines. Um, they come over to this country. They're they're in subway stations. They're in train stations. And again, uh, things like cigarettes. Uh, later, chewing gum, which of course chewing gum being a, a substitute for smoking in urban areas, chewing gum can be purchased in vending machines. Where where the where the rub is though here, is that. Things that went into vending machines, particularly in the post-war period, had to be shelf-stable if you were going to put it in a vending machine. And uh, it also had to fit the format of the, the, the mechanics of the vending machine. So if you think about this for a second, the, the, the nature of how it had to be formed and then had to be shelf-stable by its very nature was not going to be natural. It yeah. was hard to have an apple or a banana, or it was going to be something like a cake or a cupcake or potato chips or soda. So by its very nature, something with a half life of at least a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I and mean, so you don't have to fix it very often. So really where it comes down to now is that the technology, the refrigerated technology, uh, introduced into a vending machine, the mechanics of the vending machine now enable it to have fresher foods. So, for example, uh, if you've seen them in O'Hare Airport, uh, there are these farm fresh uh, vending machines that have uh, literally a, a glass jar. So, again, it's not in plastic with a salad with a screw top and it's fresh. And so the, 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 the evolution of the mechanics, the evolution of then popular taste and by the way let's let's also talk about the kind of changing nature of travel uh has caused them to say we we've got to make this change in in, a, in an increasingly shrinking market you, you you don't see many phone booths anymore and and you don't see many uh as many vending machines so this has been a case of shrinking market share uh, a need to keep up with trends and then the technology that allows them to deliver uh a fresher product yeah, interesting. And uh, I, I guess uh, a, a transition from that to uh, a, another item that is f famously uh, uh, enclosed in an iconic small packaging, albeit not something you would uh, likely buy uh, in a vending machine, certainly against brand for them, uh, would be uh, would be Tiffany uh, and Company. Um, 
you mentioned before, you know, the railroad industry, and Tiffany goes all the way back, I think, to 1837, right at the uh, beginning of uh, the beginning of, uh, of the rail industry, and has a long, illustrious history. Uh, what do you make of uh, the new potential uh, takeover of Tiffany? Well, you know, it's funny with iconic brands like that. We we we, we sometimes think, oh, oh my goodness, Tiffany is Tiffany is for sale, and. Uh, if you look at the history of Tiffany, particularly in the 20th century, uh, it's been a history of a number of sales. And by the way, to your point about would they ever be, would they ever be found in a vending machine, there have been uh, ups and downs in the, in the quality and design uh, of Tiffany over the years. So let's go back. In 1955, Walter Hoving uh, a, a seasoned uh, retail executive buys the company as it's literally uh, kind of flat on its back. It, it, it was ha- maybe a horrible year, and he grows the business out. Uh, I think when he when he when he bought them, they were probably about doing about seven million dollars worth of business. By the time he sold them, and ready, who did he sell them to? Avon Products in in 1979. He had grown them to a hundred million dollar company. How? By, by getting them to back to their luster. Uh, Avon then, then buys the company uh, in 1980, and pretty much because of their kind of mass uh, retailing uh, history, kind of runs them into the ground. So they, they have them for a number of years, and then they take them, they sell them again, all right? So they get, they get sold uh, uh, again. Uh, they are then taken public, uh, and, and that's been probably the era uh, we can think of m- m- more of, of the publicly traded, uh, 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 from about 87 on, the publicly traded uh, Tiffany. So again, what's happened with them is depending on the economic times, they either shift toward mass merchandising or they then shift back to luxury goods. For the last uh, 15, 20 years, they've been back into the luxury goods uh, again, the blue box. They kind of found their price point. And, again, they are now a valuable franchise. So uh, I could see why, once again, uh, this is a, a, a great opportunity uh, for LMDH uh, to want to make a, a run at them. It will be interesting to see if they get them. Well, and it will also be interesting to see uh, – you know, getting uh, acquired into a uh, essentially a luxury house of brands, uh, what direction the brand will take over the next decade or so when we presumably, you know, hit a little bit more of an economic recession in the coming years, too. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think the great thing about an LMDH, and the one thing that has really affected uh, Tiffany, and, and, and one of the things that, that frankly, Hoving brought to them, uh, himself having been trained uh, uh, at the Met, his son later went on to be uh, one of the greatest museum curators of all times, um, uh, Thomas Hoving, um, has always been a challenge of talent. Uh, you know, business leadership versus versus kind of creative leadership. And one thing in an LMVH with a house of brands like that, they have a great bench of talent. So if you really think about it, uh, there is probably uh, I would give them a, a much better a much better uh, uh, kind of a prognosis uh, in, in that kind of environment than as a standalone. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of Tiffany as that versatile, versatile of a brand in that regard. Um, what, now I'm thinking about it. Are there some other brands that have that same kind of um, – 
uh, versatility that kind of go upstream and downstream based on the broader economic environment? Yeah, and I think it's mainly the, the term luxury brands. And if you look at them, you look at a number of them. You could talk about, how about Coach? Yeah. Coach has done Coach. it a number. How, how about Burberry? They've done it a number of times. So th- these organizations have, Coach, not so long of a history. They're, they're a post-war history. But certainly Burberry, it's got, a, you know, uh, hundreds of years, 100, over 100 years of history. Yes, they will, they will, they will go. And by the way, it happened uh, with our friends at Brooks Brothers under Marks and Spencer. You know, yeah, you went in the store and under Marks and Spencer, particularly during the, the, the kind of the casual wear and business and, and also the difficult economic times, uh, uh, high inflation, difficult economic times, you went into Brooks Brothers and they had khakis and sweaters. And that was it. They were starting to look like the Gap. Uh, and so you watch them, uh, uh, you know, J. Crew. There's another one. By their very nature, that's a balance that these luxury goods uh, and retailers have to balance uh, without, without, you know, wrecking the franchise. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, wrecking the, uh, the franchise, uh, big tech is, is under a lot of pressure and obviously is uh, responding to, you know, a, a number of different uh, pressures with respect to, or at least Facebook, uh, in the context of, uh, of uh, you know po- political uh, campaigns, and uh, of course with the presidential elections, there's discussion of you know more more regulation. Uh, Senator Warren, of course, is is the most uh, aggressive in, in her position on uh, antitrust with big tech, um, and uh, with Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google uh, hitting record highs uh, this year. You know, what are your thoughts on big tech and how you know? I often think of big tech as kind of you know the, the sort of parallel to the guilt age of 100 years ago, um, you know, what, what, what's your take on uh, these firms as they are uh, preparing for potentially a different political environment and, uh, and an antitrust movement? Well, it's interesting you say that uh, in terms of where, what you compare them to, of course. Uh, the word antitrust goes back to that age, exactly the Gilded Age. Yeah. Railroads, oil, steel, sugar, they were a financial uh, uh, instrument. Uh, that allowed them to control entire industries. And then, of course, we get the first trust buster, Teddy Roosevelt, right, in the early part of the 20th century. This whole history of antitrust, you know, ebbs and flows over the years, given kind of economic trends, uh, given uh, 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 economic theory, so, so there have been some times, so for instance, in the 60s when the Chicago School of Economics uh, under Milton Friedman becomes very, very popular, not unlike, not unlike a lot of things that they influenced, there was, a, there was less, it was more laissez-faire. Uh, during the 1930s, in the Depression, where there was so much managed economy uh, under, the, under the Roosevelt administration, again, there's, a, there's an ebb because government is more or less being very invasive. Uh, I think what's most interesting, though, is I look at and if I and, and you know if I if I was wise enough to be to be giving advice uh, to these tech companies, uh, IBM is probably the most cautionary uh, tale of all of them. During the 20th century, okay, uh, there were more than tw- they were a defendant in more than 20 uh, antitrust, both government and private antitrust actions, and of those 20, and this is over an entire. Uh, over an entire uh, century, they lost only one of those matters. Basically, 
the settlements is what shaped and, and, and shaped the way the company evolved. They only lost one antitrust, and they go back to 36, and then they move all the way through the most famous 13-year antitrust suit uh, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But here's the key point, Jason, that I think big tech has to really think about. If you look at Microsoft after their antitrust uh, uh, suit uh, uh, back in the 90s, if you look at, uh, if you look at IBM, if you even look at uh, Kodak, and they had one back in the 1920s, yeah. management gets mired in these things, and they take their eye off the ball. Mm. And it took a long time for, for IBM to kind of get their act back together again because a whole generation of leadership gets engaged in antitrust. You saw it the other day. Zuckerberg is sitting up on Capitol Hill. And by the way, the next day you see his own employees are coming out saying, they heard things there that they did not appreciate, they did not like. So the big, I think the, the tailing uh, you know, indicator of these antitrust is normally a, a management preoccupation that causes these organizations to then, to then suffer and take a while to kind of almost a generation of leadership to regain, to regain. And then if you look at it, Balmer and, and uh, Gates were completely preoccupied uh, in, in, in the Microsoft uh, in the Microsoft action, and uh, it took them up to 2001, and then this next generation has kind of gotten their act back. But think, think what happens. New projects uh, suffer, innovation suffers, recruiting suffers. So that would be the one thing I would be thinking about uh, when, I, when you enter into one of these. And IBM would be a great case study, certainly, uh, for all of the uh, big tech to be looking at. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an interesting point because uh, you, you hear the term kind of at a high level existential threat, and of course you think about that from the from the perspective of just you know pure survival, you know, versus versus being broken up. Uh, but it's an interesting point that you make that it has this cascading downstream effect uh, across the inter- this ripple effect across the enterprise. So that's a, a really absolutely point. Abs- and the industry and the industry yeah. the industry certainly. But I mean, come on, look at AT and T. Right, yeah. AT&T got broken up. Right, and of course, and it's this whole issue of natural monopolies against non-natural monopolies, and you know, I mean, again, we're playing against the backdrop of economic theory, uh, regulation, uh, business practices, uh, and consumer kind of consumer political interests, and so yeah, these all come together and create, like you said, a really interesting mix of uh, dynamics that these these companies have to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of uh, interesting dynamics uh, that companies have to, to navigate, uh, last, um, uh, last Tuesday, uh, the uh, third annual Future Investment Initiative kicked off in Riyadh, and uh, this is, of course, uh, you know, known as the Davos in the Desert, and uh, we're about a year, uh, a year out, of course, from the uh, horrible, horrible uh, assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi in, in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, of course, at that time, there was a lot of pressure on firms to not participate in uh, Davos in the desert, and, and particularly a lot of uh, financiers uh, uh, pulled out. Um, what's your take on, on, on this year's event and, uh, and some of the uh, iconic uh, American companies that have ties to Saudi Arabia? Well, you know, again, there would, in a sense, be no Saudi Arabia if it weren't for American companies. Of course, the most important relationship being Saudi Aramco, Aramco being the Arab-American oil company. Um, 
and and if you look at the if you look at kind of the evolution of of American businesses in Saudi Arabia, it is closely tied to uh, the development of the country. So if you look at the earliest earliest. Uh, and, and by the way, and, and politics, no different than it is today. So if you look back at the earliest, earliest relationships back there, you know, uh, when FDR goes over there and, and meets with uh, the founder of Saudi Arabia, uh, Ibn Saad, uh, months before he dies, by the way, in, in 1945, what's, what, what does he give him as a gift? He gives him a DC-3. He gives him a Douglas DC-3 airplane as a gift. He also gave him a wheelchair because uh, he saw he was having trouble walking, gave him one of his wheelchairs. Uh, Churchill was at the same meeting. What did he give him? Gave him a, a beautiful uh, Rolls Royce. Uh, there's always a connection, you see, between business and politics and opening up these countries. So if you want to follow the evolution, so then what you get, you get the oil companies. So what's the first thing in? Those companies that support the oil companies. Engineering firms, right? Engineering firms. Construction equipment. Because they're now building roads. So you get Caterpillar comes in. You get Bechtel comes in. Now they're there to support the growth of first the infrastructure and the oil industry. Now they continue on and they start having wealth. What comes in next? Consumer companies, right? So, for instance, in the 1950s, I think about 56 or 57, Pepsi-Cola comes into Saudi Arabia. But why is that? It was during the Eisenhower administration, which was Republican, Pepsi follows Eisenhower around the world and the Republican Party around the world. Pepsi goes there, all right? And why are they there? They're there because uh, they're also going to the Soviet Union. As, as American diplomacy moves around the world, the, the companies that are in, in good stead with, with the political parties, they go in. Uh, GE, General Electric, I believe, has been in Saudi Arabia for over 80 years. I think it's probably their largest Middle Eastern operation because, again, they were providing infrastructure. So what you're going to see now, particularly what happened last year uh, against the tragic background of Khashoggi's uh, assassination, was what's our newest export, right? Uh, finance. Finance, So yeah. you've got uh, BlackRock, you've got Goldman Sachs, you've got uh, you know, all the banks, because that is our newest export product. What's really interesting is that what still has not happened in, in Saudi Arabia from, a, from a, a kind of a business standpoint, still not a lot of manufacturing over there. Okay, so we love to export our automobiles over there, and that's what they're trying to change. They now want investment. They want boots on the ground. They want people working over there. They want Saudis employed. So it's kind of interesting to see the, the attraction of finance, but, you know, that's not going to employ. It will employ, but it, won't employ, it still can be, can be maintained out of London, uh, New York, uh, anywhere. What they need is for Ford and Toyota and uh, General Electric is building some plants over there. They need this next phase of investment to be able to actually build uh, industries that will employ uh, Saudi uh, citizens. So that's where we are today. Interesting point. Cool. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, that plays out. Um, and uh, we will uh, talk again in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll keep our eye on uh, the uh, on the debut of uh, Beyond Chicken. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm telling you, I love my Beyond. I've, I've been I, once a week. I go get myself an Impossible Whopper uh, at because uh, I used to love the Whopper burger. 
And I'll tell you what, maybe it's because they pile all that junk on top of it, but so that it helps a little bit. But, man, it tastes just like a Whopper. <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, go get, yourself a, uh, go get yourself a faux Whopper, and we'll talk soon. Rock and roll. Lastly, let's dig into some of the interesting milestones uh, coming up in November. On November 15th, 1867, the stock ticker is first unveiled in New York City. Invented by Edward Callahan, the stock ticker feeds traders up-to-the-minute stock prices over telegraph wires. Before the stock ticker, information from the New York Stock Exchange, which had been around since 1792, traveled by mail or messenger. Callahan is inspired by seeing a group of rushing messenger boys and comes up with his invention, which is named a ticker because of the sound the machine's type wheel made. And I guess those boys then lost their jobs, and maybe that's why they later threw bricks into store windows and sloshed people's tires on Halloween. No, I'm just kidding. That timeline doesn't add up. But it's actually misconstrued that Thomas Edison invented the stock ticker, but he did not. Edward Callahan did. But Edison did improve the stock ticker a few years after its creation, but he did not invent the stock ticker. Speaking of which, there's a new movie about Edison that's just come out, and we'll probably be taking that up in the next episode after we have a chance to see it. Also in November, on November 5th, 1935, Parker Brothers Company launches Monopoly, one of the best-selling board games in history. And it immediately struck me as ironic that Monopoly debuted during the latter stages of the Great Depression. I might have guessed that it would have come out in the 1920s, but Monopoly was actually a descendant of a board game patented in 1904 by Lizzie Maggie, a Quaker from Virginia. And her invention, which she called the Landlord Game, was initially designed to promote her political belief in the passing of a single federal tax based on land ownership. I bet you didn't know that. But the game spread through word of mouth, and then in 1933, Charles B. Darrow mapped out his own version of the game on an oilcloth stretched across his kitchen table. He soon started selling homemade copies of the game to friends and relatives, And demand quickly outstripped supply, and then he decided to solve the problem by attempting to sell his game to an established manufacturer. Fearful that the game had too many rules and would take too long to play, Parker Brothers initially rejected Darrow's creation, but eventually Parker Brothers came to its senses and snapped up the rights to Monopoly for an undisclosed sum. Maybe they also threw in a get-out-of-jail pass for Mr. Darrow, and the rest is history. We now have one of the most successful games of all time. Parker Brothers, of course, was later acquired by Hasbro, but way to go, Monopoly, a timeless classic. Okay, before we wrap it up, let's back up to our mystery company. Uh, As we shared before, this company formed a partnership with the USO back in 1941, and its explosive growth, especially in the second half of the 20th century, really mirrored the expansion of America's military presence around the world. The company, of course, is Coca-Cola. Of course, during World War II, company president Robert W. Woodruff believed every man in the military should be able to buy Coke for five cents. His stance led to the expansion of bottling sites around military installations like Camp Pendleton, California, and Fort Benning, Georgia. Coke went on to build 64 new plants around the world, mostly in Europe and North Africa, and employed 200 people to maintain the plants and supply logistics to support troops. Between 1943 and 1949, service members in the field consumed more than 5 billion Coca-Colas. 
So that's it for our show. Happy Veterans Day and thank you for your service to those of you who have served. Thanks to the Big Chief and stay tuned for our next episode of History Factory Plugged In, which is going to be our Thanksgiving special. We'll explore some of the companies and brands that have shaped some of our traditions and associations with Thanksgiving. So keep a lookout for that. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well.